This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a limited series Hellraiser podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined as always by Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing okay. We are coming in with this third installment. We are talking about the Scarlet Gospels, and I feel like we both have a lot of things to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they're all going to be optimistic and happy and and good things to say about it (laughs) yes absolutely (laughs) so folks if you have not had an opportunity to do so we have released two previous episodes one talking about clive barker's the hellbound heart and the second installment was about the hellraiser comics and there is going to be a significant amount of overlap between this episode and those so if you haven't had a chance to listen we do encourage you to go back and Uh, Just check them out because I think it's really going to inform the conversation today in terms of like, this is a direct sequel to The Hellbound Heart. And also there were some really interesting overlaps between the comics and what Barker eventually does with this very long gestating sequel. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this was in the works for, I I would say, close to two decades. Which is bananas to me, because I I knew that this was on the horizon. I remember I was very unplugged from Barker and a lot of horror writing at the time that this came out. So I knew it was coming, but I didn't have that same sense of excitement as I might have in the 90s. And Mm. I didn't realize that he had been sort of percolating on this for that length of time. I thought this was like, oh, yeah, you know, we said about five years ago, and then I had my health scare, and then we finally publish it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know when when we say publish, it was published in October of 2015. But he was having discussions about wanting to do a story in which Pinhead dies as early as as 1998. Mm-hmm. Now that's after Bloodline comes out, so I mean right. technically Pinhead already died, but <laughs> but that's so far in the future, Brian. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and anyone who knows Barker knows he has a pretty fraught relationship mm-hmm. with the character Pinhead. You know he. Yeah. Us uh, Hellraiser obsessives, you know, uh, will have likely seen all the various behind the scenes tidbits on the various, you know, DVD releases. And, you know, I distinctly remember on one of them, <laughs> he started off the discussion saying like, okay, this is the last time I'm talking about Hellraiser. So yeah. ask me all the questions you want to ask me because I do not want to talk about this or Pinhead ever again. It's got to be rough, right? I mean, as a person who has created a fairly substantive body of work, it's got to be annoying to him that people only want to talk about this one character. They're talking about it using a name that Barker himself never used. Mm. Uh, He's seen it go through all these different permutations that have just diluted the brand and his ideas with each successive direct-to-video movie. Like, I I can't imagine how annoyed he must be. So this idea of, well, fine, you fucking want this? I'm going to bring him back and I'm going to kill him and then I'm going to be done with this. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm putting a definitive stamp on the end of of Pinhead's story. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that wound up taking him uh, over the course of nearly 20 years to actually put into practice. It's wild. Yeah. I, I And I remember, you know, early days of, you know, as an elder millennial, you know, I remember the early days of the internet where <laughs> there were only like four or five sites that may have been of interest. And, you know, for me, it was like the Phantasm website and then also Clive Barker's website because I had heard of these rumors of, you know, Barker wanting to do a grand kind of finale for the Pinhead character. And right. so, you know, he would give periodic updates on his website about it, which I would check, you know, obsessively. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, this is over the course of, of many years. So it's it, it became a little bit of, you know, it was like someone trying to find the lament configuration. Right. 
And so initially the scope was pretty massive for the book he was writing. You know, Barker in interviews or, or in updates would talk about how the book was, he was predicting it was going to come in at about a thousand to 2000 pages. Yeah, which is like a magica length. So on the top end of his oeuvre. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm almost thinking, you know, and for for whatever reason, my mind's going to like, you know, if this is Stephen King, you know, we're talking, this is the stand, this is, it, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be this big, grand, epic scope, which I was oh very much looking forward to. Can you imagine, uh, mm. you know, not not trying to jump ahead to what we actually get, <laughs> but it's really hard to process the idea that this book was three times as long. Yeah, yeah, because I think the final product maybe was like, what, like, between three and four hundred, something like that. I think so. Yeah. Now, when the initial manuscript was finished in 2010, he decided to make massive edits over the course of like the next three years. Hmm. And then during that time, however, there was a pretty significant hiatus in the form of a really close call when it comes to a health scare that he had in 2012. Uh, You know, and a lot of, Barker fans probably know uh, he actually went into a coma after suffering from toxic shock syndrome during a dental procedure. You know, apparently some some pretty potent bacteria wound up getting into his system and it was almost, you know, curtain call for Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember reading about that and legitimately hand-wringing thinking that one of the most important queer creators of our time was about to pass like i was distraught and taken out by a fucking dental procedure like that would have it's been... so innocuous it's so <laughs> just like no that this man needs to like when he goes it needs to be that he is like carried away by some kind of pterodactyl over a canyon <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> or like you know recreate the the frank death from the end of hellraiser or something right. like that like yes it needs to be as grand as this man's kind of imagination was a hundred percent dental fucking toxic shock syndrome no Mm -mm. (laughs) uh and i'm sure barker would love to hear us you know talking about the way he he should Mm. die as opposed to the way he almost did Uh, but i I get the sense that he would have been annoyed by that like you know yeah in what whatever the afterlife may or may not look like i just picture him being like really that was that was it really (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but fortunately he did pull through you know he has had some lingering health effects ever since um mm-hmm. but he's you know he's still alive and kicking yeah and he kept going with the book uh in 2014 it was announced that St Martin's Press would publish it and then it was officially released in October of of 2015 again after you know almost 20 years of when he first started hinting that he wanted to do this this grand finale and did you read it when it was first published, or was this your first time reading it? Oh, I pre-ordered it. Oh, yeah. I, I read it right when you it came out. on that shit. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I And I, I remember, I have distinct memories of having some issues lingering in the back of my mind with it, mm-hmm. um, but really trying to put a... A positive spin on the fact right. that like hey the master came back and he he brought this world back and we got to you know live in it for three or four hundred pages so you know mm-hmm. overall i was happy with the experience i will say that upon second reading uh the flaws were more pronounced yeah yeah it's tough right i mean this is a situation where we have been living in this world, living with these characters, building up anticipation for so long. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to think of a situation where we wouldn't be disappointed. And to be honest, my greatest frustration with this is that it is not a slam dunk and it is not a colossal misfire. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of things that work about this. And then there are some things where I just go, what the fuck is this doing in here? Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the, the stuff that goes wrong is so wrong is so wrong and so unneeded it adds nothing to the discussion or the explorations that these that this book is trying to have it just seems mm-hmm. it almost seems like <laughs> it seems petty if 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 that makes any sense like it, it seems like and we'll talk about this a little bit later but uh, you know it seems like he's saying some very definitive things about like what he thinks of the pinhead character uh mm-hmm. which we will come to know is is now known as the or his official title is the hell priest right and the the decisions he makes 
with that character are, I think, coming from someone who is, you know, he wants to give him a grand exit, but he also, like... Fucking hates him. Yeah, he still harbors <laughs> a lot of resentment for this character. And so I think he wants us to, to harbor that same resentment, and it comes out in really unfortunate ways. ways. Yeah. yeah. But even, like, you could apply that to a certain extent to the Harry Demore character. Like, there's there's some weird unlikability going on with possibly two of Barker's most famous creations here. And I think that a question I would have about that is, I don't know to what degree that veers off of how he's portrayed him in the past. Like, have you read any of the other Harry Demore stories? And does this line up at all? Um, or, or is it a departure? So I've only read the Books of Blood that introduces Demore and is the quote-unquote unofficial source material for Lord of Illusions. Mm. And Demore is definitely like a burgeoning alcoholic. He's a bit of a cad, but he's also a person who will do anything for his friends. Like he's very much a film noir neo-noir kind of private detective with his own personal issues and here i think that's mostly on par for what we get in the scarlet gospels there's just a couple of moments and again i don't know how much of this is you and i looking at this 2015 book through our 2022 lens or mm -hmm. if we have just evolved this far as a culture but there were a couple of things where i just thought wow harry you are a fucking dinosaur and you sound like james bond right now <laughs> and that's it's also interesting the difference that you know even seven years can make because right. some of the some of the things that we've kind of queued up to talk about are things that i don't even know if i noticed the first time i read them oh 100 percent, yeah on my YA book to film adaptation, me and my co-host Brenna constantly talk about films and books from the early 2000s, and I would be generous and extend this up to about 2015, where you're just still frequently seeing the R word. You're getting mm. tons of fat phobia. Like, as a culture, we were legitimately uninterested in discussing otherness or acknowledging that there's a value to people who aren't quote-unquote normal mm -hmm. like all the way through to the midpoint of the decade and then just something shifts and you know yeah like we're, we're not going to spend the next hour talking about like pc woke culture blah 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 but <laughs> there's stuff in here where you think okay wow yeah this is only seven years ago and yet it leaps off the page because we just don't do that shit anymore yeah yeah and you know we we might as well get those out of the way now um yeah. so the the first is and and you you kind of gave me a heads up that this was coming uh there's a bit of casual transphobia uh fairly early on coming from from harry mm -hmm. and, and some of his allies uh and it's it stands out for a couple of reasons a because it is kind of blatant and b because again it adds nothing they mm -hmm. introduce a trans character who does wind up actually, you know, we find out is working for the other side, is working mm -hmm. for, you know, some part of hell. I actually don't remember if she's working f directly for Pinhead or just kind of working for hell in general. Oh, God, it's so unclear. Like, yeah. this, this character is barely even a character. She is introduced so that she can be evil. And yeah, like, the, the minute that they start to figure out that she's not on the up and up, we're misgendering her we're using slurs and mm -hmm. it's weird because I've, I've been having a lot of conversations lately about like oh is this text racist is this text homophobic is this text transphobic or is it the characters and my default is always it's the characters but it's also really challenging for me as a queer man to read this book from a queer author and see the disparaging lack of allyship like as queer people we're often meant to help sort of protect our own or or be kinder and unfortunately there is a gulf specifically between white gay men and members of the trans community which i just saw very evidently in this book like so there's there's harry who's saying these kinds of things and then there's this character dale who is a mm -hmm. uh, you know sure we could say well it's a southern gay man so maybe he's not as politically correct but it it was really frustrating to be like oh 
really we're, we're having queer characters talking about other queer characters in really negative disparaging ways and it's like the only reason they're saying this is because this person is bad so you're like cool we've already got a bad trans character like a villain mm-hmm. and then they're literally being misgendered by our heroes simply because they are bad and you're like or you could have just made them bad like you didn't need to do this this character doesn't even need to be trans like Barker doesn't want to do anything with that. So it's just like, here's a trans person. They're not only a villain, they're being misgendered. And I would argue that character doesn't need to be there at all. Like no. even even without the, you know, the transphobic issues, like they don't she doesn't add really anything to the long term story. Like no. she comes in long enough to, I think, like manipulate or 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 fuck with Harry in his mm-hmm. dreams. And then she leaves and she gets like horribly murdered and mutilated and nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. (laughs) So folks, this is happening at the heart of the book. So Harry is based out of New York. He gets sent on this mission to help a ghost based on his mystic friend, Norma, who is uh, blind, black and elderly. Yeah, I guess we kind of skipped a synopsis, didn't we? we yeah, part of me is kind of like, oh, we probably shouldn't default assume people have read this book. So, Brian, why don't you step back and walk us through what the book is actually about? Sure, sure. So we are, you know, we're, we're looking at two of Barker's probably most famous characters coming together for this finale, which, you know, on paper is, is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have harry who lives in you know it's also not just bringing these two characters together but it's bringing their mythos together because harry demore works in a different kind of hell than Mm -hmm. than what we know from pinhead leviathan the cenobites and all that um and as we've seen you know in the the comic books they they've done things to bring those worlds together before you know the, right. the saying that these different hells are just kind of different iterations of of hell or maybe different circles things like that and so you know he's doing that again here and we have harry uh who you know as you had had started off with is you know starting to investigate uh based off of um one of uh, his I don't know, assistant sidekick partner, uh, Norma, uh, who is a, a blind medium. She can talk to, to, to spirits. In fact, she always has to talk to spirits because they're always kind of hounding her to, to mm-hmm. help with their, their unresolved issues. And so one of those um, ghosts leads Harry, by extension, down to New Orleans, where it's under the guise of, like this guy is saying, I had some proclivities that I would rather not get out to see the light of day. Uh, I need you to come and kind of, for for lack of a better term, like clean up my browser history in my house. Yeah. Um, Turns out that this is all set up to... I forget the exact reason why the ghost did it, but for the plot device, it was to get Harry and Pinhead in the same room for the first time. Uh, Because we find out that pinhead is starting to consolidate power mm-hmm. he is he has been killing the uh the the best magicians across the, the the planet and he's kind of taking their magic uh which is interesting because it's a bit of a a taboo area for demons like they see they they see earth like ew don't touch them <laughs> don't don't get your, your human germs on them yeah, yeah, don't use their magic. That's that's child play. Like we work on another level, but he is consolidating all of that power for, you know, means yet, yet to be determined at this point. But basically, you know, we're we're set up for a clash between Harry uh and and Pinhead who is setting up for something big in hell. Yeah. And this this trans character who comes in in this sequence the reason that we say that it's ultimately not valuable or important and could really be excised is because there's two kinds of set pieces. One is that Harry gets poisoned by her and then has an, an interaction in a dream where he nearly dies and then comes out of it and then goes to this ghost's uh, abode and basically that's where he interacts with Pinhead and again nearly dies and manages to barely escape. And one could argue that if you're doing edits on this book, you could just cut out the trans character, the death dream, and go directly to the ghost house and have the interaction with Pinhead, because that's the important part of Harry's trip down south. 
Well, actually, if I remember correctly, I think the death dream comes after the house because he he oh, right. meets yeah. he meets this group after he's been like obliterated by by pinhead and one of his henchmen like he's just kind of torn to shreds and it's only because of the intervention of dale and then by extension you know the group including this this trans character and i apologize that i keep saying this trans character but i don't know if they actually name her (laughs) yeah and when i was looking through plot synopses she doesn't even get mentioned i i believe she does have a name but yeah it's it's such a superfluous character that it's it's very frustrating. Yeah, and I think that's very telling. If she doesn't make, she doesn't even make the Wikipedia synopsis. Like she's not adding anything to the plot. Right. Yeah. So it's just a very weird decision to include her, misgender her a bit uh, under the guise of like, I guess you know, if we don't like people, then it's okay to deny yeah. them their gender, uh, mm-hmm. and then they move on. So it's yes. you know, it's unnecessary, weird, and bad. Yep. So then Harry goes back to New York to start sussing things out and realizes that he's on this hit list. So mm-hmm. the magicians have all been killed at this point, and Harry appears to be next, and Norma appears to be next. So they kind of go on the lamb, and then this is when Pinhead opens a portal into Manhattan and abducts <laughs> Norma, and then we spend the rest of the book in hell. Mm-hmm. Which should be for for my money should be grander than it really (sighs) seems to have been uh and i think this is for me there's two things at play the first is that i think that the longer version of this book i have to imagine takes hell into a grander scale you know Mm -hmm. if if we're talking about this in you know a couple thousand pages i i have to imagine that it's something that you know is more awe-inspiring but also at the same time in the description we get it's such a mundane mm-hmm. version of hell. Like they have rickshaws and they have like day to day activities. And there's this, there's this lack of desperation from the character. Like you're stuck in hell and yes, they're scared and yes, they're freaked out. But like, this should be like every second we spend here, we are an inch closer to death or, or mm-hmm. some horrible end. And it, it, it becomes routine very quickly in a way that I think takes away from the the suspense of the overall narrative. Yeah, it is genuinely shocking. So at this point, Harry has put together a group of people. So they're in pursuit of Norma, and Pinhead is basically carving a path through the remaining opposing forces who will stop him from his ultimate goal. So he's, he's killed the other Cenobites. Uh, he's going through and killing high leaders. And that was pretty... That was pretty neat. Like the yeah. the, uh, yeah. the the sequence where he releases the I think it's like uh, like origami cranes mm. or something like that mm-hmm. or, or creatures that uh, it, it's basically like this sense of the Cenobites don't see this coming because he's using this piddling human magic, right. but he's he's consolidated it so well and brought it and made it so potent that he is able to basically release these these origami creatures that just instantly make whoever they come in contact with just unleash this torrent of blood out of like every mm-hmm. orifice. Yep. And oh, he yeah. wipes out the entire Cenobite order in like what seems like, I don't know, a, a half hour. Minutes. Yeah. 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 No, I, we should say, you know, there, there's definitely things that don't work about this book, but the descriptions of violence and gore are mm-hmm. just chef's kiss. They're so fucking good. Yeah, and he comes out swinging with that because he does know, you know, for whatever mistakes he makes, he knows why we're here. So mm-hmm. the, the opening scene is Pinhead just tearing through kind of this this final group of magicians that he's looking for. Uh, and the the description he gives to, like, what the chains are doing to people are that's for for lack of a better term the money shot like he knows what the money shot is Mm -hmm. uh and it's also you get some of that clive barker dark humor where like you know he talks about the chains like going up through people's buttholes and when i say buttholes he actually says buttholes you know and (laughs) and like goes up and like tears their stomachs out through their buttholes you know so it's he's he's at i think at his gleefully sadistic best when he's you know describing these acts of violence yeah. And now, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering if maybe our expectations of Barker 
not being offensive were off the mark from the very beginning because even in this opening sequence with the magicians there is a female magician and of course her punishment is that she gets she is impregnated and the baby chews its way out of her and I remember at the time thinking, okay, you know, there's, yeah, some gleeful violence. It's really well described. These fates are horrendous, but there is some weird misogyny going on. And there is uh, almost like homophobia in the way that it's like, well, what could be worse than getting a chain up the butt, right? <laughs> and and part of me wonders if this is just Barker saying, no, I'm a shit disturber. And fuck you for thinking that I was going to play it safe. Uh, I'm out to offend everybody. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is a very tricky tightrope. And I don't think... You know, there are some things that, you know, like that opening scene, there are some parts of that that, that does certainly give me pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the the playfully homophobic elements lands a little different when it's coming from someone who is, right. you know, out as, as <laughs> very queer. Um, so, you know, it, it's when it's uh, self-deprecating or, or something mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, I can make fun of white dudes all they want and in fact anybody can make fun of white dudes all they want as they should (laughs) but you know when we start getting out of our lane with that and we've already talked about a little bit with the transphobia i i think the even like bigger red flag is the way he approaches norma's story because that is very much just there's playing with discomfort and there's playing with bad taste and then there Mm -hmm. is just kind of like being willfully shitty (laughs) about a character so so norma you know is already kind of falling into that magical negro trope Mm -hmm. that you know we're we're all pretty much sick of at this point yep but then he takes that and just kind of puts it on steroids or not like it's weird because he doesn't even take that trope that trope is not used much and it's Mm -hmm. replaced instead with norma just getting like abused for the duration of the book yeah it's basically misery porn so the reason that the hell priest abducts norma is because he's trying to lure harry because he wants harry to witness what he's about to do which his ultimate goal is that he wants to overthrow lucifer and become the king of hell or like Mm -hmm. the leader of hell and he believes that harry is the one to document this hence the title scarlet gospels and so the only way to make sure that harry comes to him and doesn't try to interfere until he is ready is for the help priest to bring norma with him because he knows that harry will go anywhere to rescue her which Mm -hmm. is fine but like there's a sequence where norma gets the absolute shit beaten out of her for no reason Mm mm-hmm and then they perform a spell so that she doesn't feel any of her pain. And then they just drag her around as they go on this sort of episodic journey to get to Lucifer's Cathedral at the end. And you're like, so this woman is there just as bait. Like, that is her role in this book. She's beaten. And then at the end of the book, you know, we're Mm. we're skipping ahead. There's a lot of different things that happen. We'll fill in some of the blanks. But like her ultimate resolution is to warn Harry. And then she gets raped to death by Pinhead. And it's like, what the fuck? That was so fucking unnecessary. And it was like, I even remember, you know, there's the things I didn't pick up on in 2015. Mm -hmm. This is the thing I 100% picked up on in 2015. Like, what the fuck was that about? There is no reason other than, again, I, I think Clive Barker, he wants us to like despise mm-hmm. the pinhead character as much as he does. But it's, there were other ways to do that. And <laughs> it's character assassination, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you thought this guy was cool. You thought yeah. that he was interesting. Sure. He's all of those things. Look, he's also a rapist of the elderly yeah still love him (laughs) and as like a like another thing that doesn't really further the plot other than because like everything's already happened at that point like the the battle is more or less over we're wrapping things up and it's like oh norma yeah raped her and killed her 
this is the epilogue. The, this is one final, like, fuck you from Pinhead on his way out, mm-hmm. which is just not in keeping with his character, like, at all. Like, that's not his style. Mm-hmm. And so to do that is just such a egregious misstep and will leave just such a bad taste in your mouth especially given that like this could have been such a an interesting bittersweet ending to this character because ultimately mm-hmm. what happens is you know he goes toe to toe with Lucifer Lucifer good kicks stuff. his ass really yeah. good <laughs> um and, and and even going back a little bit you know one of the things that I think was interesting was that I get the sense that initially Pinhead or you know as we know him in in this book the hell priest he wasn't necessarily trying to overthrow hell he mm-hmm. wanted an audience with lucifer yes and it was when he found out that lucifer had gone through this large ritualistic like he basically built an entire massive tower to use for ritualistic suicide because mm-hmm. he just couldn't stand the monotony of hell anymore yeah it was at that point that pinhead uh, hey, the hell priest. I'm just going to keep calling him Pinhead. Yeah, like, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> uh, decided that like, okay, well, if the king is dead, then guess who's going to be the new king? Um, yeah. And I love that idea of yeah. Pinhead's journey mimics Lucifer, who is the ultimate baddie, right? But in this book, Lucifer is presented very much as the fallen angel, right? Like he mm-hmm. is the one who he doesn't have god's grace anymore and that's where the wear and tear came about right like he's got this whole empire that he is the ruler of and he doesn't want any of it because he realizes that he just wants to be back in god's good graces and that's why he ends up trying to die by suicide and pinhead sees himself in lucifer's journey and says well if you don't fucking want this then i will take it but really he's on the same journey like the reason that he came to lucifer in the first place is because he is also tired of the monotony of being a cenobite and just doing this work like mm-hmm. really th- this is a workplace comedy this is about people <laughs> who are tired of their jobs and they just want to try something new and it ends in epic bloodshed it ends in the end of hell literally the end of hell yes. um because you know pinhead essentially he takes lucifer's armor uh, and through the process of that kind of undoes some of the the, the suicide machine's machinations. Mm-hmm. And that is enough to bring Lucifer back around. And Lucifer, you know, the first thing he does upon waking up is like, oh, you absolutely will not fucking usurp mm-hmm. my throne uh, and decides <laughs> to put Pinhead in his place. And they have yeah. this big kind of epic violent battle where each one is like, pretty significantly disfigured but Mm -hmm. you know lucifer can bounce back pinhead cannot yeah and so uh he is you know completely and kind of just utterly mangled uh Mm -hmm. by lucifer through uh, just a series of of like magically violent acts Mm -hmm. uh that i will say you know read the book because barker does a much better job of describing them than i could oh it's very exciting it's very cinematic to the point where if you think about the culmination of decades worth of stories like this really is epic and grand and exciting and it's kind of the thing that i was wanting more of right like Mm -hmm. not to jump back but you mentioned about how the depiction of hell is kind of boring and mundane Mm -hmm. and I fully agree with you. There's some really interesting parts of this world that Barker has created here, but a lot of it just feels like, oh, hell is a city. And then it turns into a desolate wasteland, and then we cross a lake, and then we get to this giant cathedral. But all of the stuff in the cathedral is really fucking good. And it mm-hmm. it feels like the thing that we've been waiting for, right? The grandiose conclusion to this epic saga. And seeing Pinhead go tete-a-tete with Lucifer is like fuck yes Mm -hmm. the problem is that the rest of the book isn't living up to that kind of stuff right like it's a lot of low stakes you know harry and crew following along like basically they just follow pinhead for the duration of the book (laughs) yeah and then they witness this epic battle and then they have to escape before hell falls apart Yes, because it's for for Lucifer, it's not enough that he's you know defeated Pinhead. He realizes like if I can't even commit suicide, so yeah, the only thing I can do, <laughs> I've just got to tear all this shit to the ground. 
Can we talk about how how evocative the idea of a stone ceiling to hell is that yeah. Lucifer is just like ramming into by like flying up in the sky and giant pieces of rock are falling down and ending the world, Brian? <laughs> like, whoa. And that's such a, a Milton kind of approach to hell. You know, it's it's taking that idea that hell is indeed like this giant cavern that was mm -hmm. created by Lucifer when he fell. And so it's it's interesting that hell is like this. It's not this infinite like space. It is very contained. Mm -hmm. And it can ultimately be destroyed, which Lucifer yeah. does by pulling this giant sea monster out of a lake and yep. just ramming it into hell's mm -hmm. ceiling and just bringing it all crashing down. So interesting. And this could have been, again, such a bittersweet approach to, you know, Pinhead shot his shot, failed, mm -hmm. and now he and all of hell are kind of wind up yeah. collapsing out of existence. And it would have been right a really interesting ending. And then he adds this like mm -hmm. weird coda where like on his way out pinhead decides he is going to sexually assault an elderly woman to death yeah. uh and then blind harry demore mm -hmm. uh just because yeah just because because <laughs> he's petty apparently yeah and i think for for me this really just gets into again the meta conversation that this book is having like you know He's been talking, and by he, I mean Barker, has been talking for years about how sick he is of Pinhead. Mm -hmm. He's sending him out. He wants to do it in a way that, like, you know, he, he wants he wants it to be so that not only is he not missing him, but we're not missing Pinhead. And I also think, you know, if we're looking at it from a meta lens, uh, he is 100% written himself into the story as Lucifer. You know, this mm. is this is a story where, you know, Pinhead is meeting his maker. Uh, Pinhead has gotten too big for his britches over right. the, the course of several decades. And now it's time for Lucifer to put him in his place. Right. Um, and then also not just put him in his place, but kind of free himself from this world. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the end of the book, uh, at the end of the story, Lucifer collapses hell. There is no going back. This mm -hmm. is all done. And then he kind of frees himself into the world and yeah. decides that he's going to kind of start fresh. And you get a hint that, like, you know, the first thing he does is he, you know, he hooks up with, with a woman. Naturally, yeah. And she says, like, something along the lines of, like, are you somebody? He says, like, not yet. You know, mm -hmm. kind of very ominously. Yeah. You know, so it's it's kind of he's he's restarting and he's he's going back into the world and, and ready to hit the reset button, you know, which mm -hmm. is I, I actually really like that ending for Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah. But to do that uh, with the flip side of what he did with Pinhead is just like I understand why he did it. I don't understand why he did it the way he did it. Mm -hmm. Especially when the other option was right there, right? Like, there's an option to just end Pinhead and have Lucifer tear down hell and have Harry and company escape back to mm -hmm. Earth. Like, that, that is enough. You can mm -hmm. say definitively, Pinhead is dead, hell is done, Lucifer is gonna start his nomadic sort of takeover of Earth, we've reset Harry as the new Norma because he's gonna be a blind mystic or medium, so there's new stories potentially to tell about both Lucifer and Harry, good. If we want to do that, if not, fine. This is the end of the Pinhead saga. It all would have worked. And even if you need to have, like, like we can't have two blind mystics, so one of them's gotta go, like... Okay, if you absolutely have to kill Norma for the sake of like the way, you know, you want this story to conclude and you want mm -hmm. things to to transpire, like hell is literally collapsing around them. There are mm -hmm. so many ways that she could have died that would have been a little bit more dignified for her oh, for than sure. the way he well more dignified for fucking everybody. Like Yeah. You know, this may seem like we're really just hitting the same plot beat again and again, because the rest of Harry's crew, the Harrowers, is made up of a very diverse crew of individuals. There's a lesbian, there's two gay men, and then there's Harry. And Kaz is a, is a, a queer man of color. So mm. it's, it's a really interesting, diverse crew. I would argue none of these people make an impact. Like, I can't tell you anything about Lana, apart from the fact that she's quote-unquote strong, but just powers at every instance and 
just talks about how she wants to go home, the whole book. <laughs> and they all get out of here scot-free. Like, mm -hmm. they walk through hell. They're dodging this green fog that transforms people into horrible creatures, which, P.S., I also loved all of those descriptions. They were mm -hmm. horrifying. But they basically just stroll through hell, witness its breakdown and complete destruction, hop through a portal, and go back to Earth. And you're mm -hmm. like, wow, well, that seemed easy, didn't it? Like, <laughs> the stakes are so weird for everybody else. But yeah, like, for Norma, oh, apparently it's rape and death. And for Harry, it's, well, you're going to be blinded. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And again, what does this do to further the story? Like, mm -hmm. what what does this do to, you know, make the, the plot richer? Like, it doesn't do anything except stand out and just call itself out as a misstep. So that's, mm -hmm. that's why we keep coming back to it, because these decisions are so baffling and unnecessary and just bad. Yeah, like, it's an egregiously bad decision in a book that, yeah, you could quibble. There are certain things that we would have liked Barker to have done differently, you know, raise the scope, raise the stakes. But there's so much of this book that is actually really interesting and working. And if you look at it as Barker, yeah, being meta and sending off his possibly most infamous character saying like, I am done with you. It's really interesting. And then there's these things that just absolutely torpedo your enjoyment to the point where you think, well, fuck. Now mm -hmm. I'm going to have to like red flag caveat this to anybody who I ever recommend the book to like, well, just be prepared. You're going to be yeah. really fucking pissed off about these couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a couple of scenes that come up that you're going to know, going to wonder why they're there mm -hmm. and you're going to hate them. Yeah. But other, yeah. other than that, it's a yeah, really no, interesting it's really book. Good. <laughs> I, I strongly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> it is tricky too, because obviously we have a reverence for these characters in a way that barker doesn't right we mm -hmm. haven't had to live with the looming shadow of these over our entire career like i ended up reading this in conjunction with one of the guys from the horror queers book club who uh had also read the novella with me and he messaged me and said i'm finding this really frustrating because I like Pinhead, and this doesn't feel like the Pinhead I know. Mm -hmm. And I think part of this is that we've had that series of really shitty films, <laughs> but we still like them, right? Like, you and I have talked at length about all of those films. We have found good in each installment. Sometimes mm -hmm. you really got to search for it, but it's in there. <laughs> Like, we like these people, so it really does kind of feel like Burke are taking a shit on some of this. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, we get that you don't like them, but we do. And this Can feels we like, like a it, bit please? of a slap in the face. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a hard <laughs> book for fans, I think. Yeah, yeah. It does take a character that we, we love and recognize is, you know, ultimately an antagonist throughout a lot of this series. But... Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you look at the pinhead here versus the pin, and I guess you can't really say the pinhead from Hellbound Heart because the, the pinhead in Hellbound Heart is a very different, like a, the, the pinhead in the Hellbound Heart isn't even the leader of the mm -hmm. Cenobites. But like, let's say you, you look at this versus his first iteration in Hellraiser. It's, <sighs> mm -hmm. there's an elegance in the, the original Hellraiser's pinhead that I think is, is, utterly lost here yeah and you know i guess you could argue that the conversation is that like barker is saying well i didn't lose that elegance in the first place if you look at the subsequent mm -hmm. you know what nine or ten movies that's where the elegance was lost i right. am just kind of taking this dog out behind the barn and, and hitting it with a shovel <laughs> but yeah. it could have been a way to like you could have done both like you could have returned this character to their roots and still also ended them, mm -hmm. you know, and there's, you know, who is better suited to do that than you who created the character in the first place. Um, but I just think there were such bad feelings by this point that they yeah. just, he couldn't overcome them and they just really came through in the, the story. Yeah, I agree. I think at the end of the day, as much as this is the long awaited return of Barker to this world and this character that fans were so excited for, 
what I think we ultimately got was the work that Barker needed to do for himself as opposed mm-hmm. to the work that fans were hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. This was kind of a cathartic process, I think, for uh, for Barker, but it came at the expense of all of fans us. of the character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, which you know to fair like this is his fucking world his characters he gets to do what he wants but yeah it's um it, it's hard not to take some of this as a bit of a fuck you defense well part of me is also like okay if you need to do that like there's nothing saying you couldn't have written this story and then not published it mm, no i i think he <laughs> had to do it so that people would stop asking him that's true yeah. right it's it's the i'm never going to talk about this again it's not enough to say fuck you to the character you have to say like fuck you to the idea of the character Mm -hmm. a little bit fuck you to the people who keep asking me about the character like yeah all right like okay you you want another story here it is i hope you fucking love it Mm -hmm. yeah and and maybe now to bring this back full circle and think about not just the hellbent heart but some of the discussion that we had around the comics Because, you know, the reason that we're doing this, we've got a movie, we've got a TV show coming up, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious to know if there's anything that could be taken out of the Scarlet Gospel that you think could show up in either of these two forthcoming adaptations. But also, how do you feel about Scarlet Gospel in conjunction to the discussion that we had about the comics? Because I feel like there was an interesting richness but also finality in some ways to the characters in the world in that one and i feel like that was somehow more successful yeah yeah i think i mean there's certainly overlap between scarlet gospels and some of the themes and the the narrative ideas that were coming from the comics you know that it makes sense because barker was also involved with a Mm -hmm. lot of those comics so you know it's not you know it's not really cribbing if it's if it's your stuff but yeah like the the whole incorporation of harry demore they do that in the comics i would argue they do it in a more interesting way in the comics by Mm -hmm. making him the new pinhead yeah which is something he hints at in the scarlet gospels because there's a couple of lines where you know in in harry's description of the lore of of pinhead uh there's that question of like is this one entity that's been around forever or have people taken over this mantle over Mm -hmm. the the millennia Um, so that's you know certainly something that you see some overlap there i did think it was interesting that a couple of times he does refer to the the group uh you know harry and his like band of travelers as harrowers Mm -hmm. uh because that is specifically one of the the epic short stories that that clive barker had a hand in it was called the harrowers so he's definitely pulling from there and then obviously there's the whole you know the factions in hell yes you know all these things i think were were things that we discussed as being potentially like rich resources to tap for uh, a tv show and i think that mm-hmm. still stands here i just don't know I, I don't know that there was much in terms of the scarlet gospels that took what the comics were doing and made them more interesting. I think most of what I think would be interesting for the TV show was the stuff that we had already talked about as it relates to the comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I could absolutely see, okay, let's set the TV show in hell and explore the Cenobites as members of a larger society that have to answer to other people like i don't imagine we're going to get a depiction of lucifer in the tv show but Mm -hmm. you know you you could explore how does hell operate and i i recognize that it maybe makes it sound like i'm arguing for a hell-based version of the office or some other (laughs) workplace sitcom but you know when we talked about judgment on um the corpse club episodes that is one of the things that I continue to find most interesting about that film. It's a garbage film. It's an ugly, messy film. But there's a kernel of, okay, well, what does the engineer do? What did the Cenobites mm-hmm. do in conjunction to other members of Hell? And there's interesting things to unpack there. We saw it in some form in the comic. And I think by luxury of having multiple episodes to play with, they could do that. And then we get a sense of it in the Scarlet Gospel, but it's on the periphery because really that's not the story that Barker is interested in telling. Yeah. It's almost like the Scarlet Gospels is an adaptation of stuff from the comics, but condensed into just kind of telling this more mm-hmm. it's a one shot version. story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, which I would rather see the the full kind yeah. of extended version, especially if we have the time to really play with this through a, a TV series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, that is one of the other things. I won't lie. As much as I love the origami massacre of the entire Cenobite population, that was also challenging as a fan because I am always intrigued by the different permutations of Cenobite and getting to think about like how do they interact and like one of the things i really loved about the comics was getting to see the female cenobite and other cenobites like how do they interact and work with pinhead and mm-hmm. sometimes not even like him all that much mm-hmm. yeah it's you know for me if if i'm doing the tv series something like the uh, the crimson crane attack would be if this is a limited series, it's happening way towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, or if this is a thing where, you know, there's multiple seasons, like this is this is final season type stuff we're right. looking at. <laughs> yeah, because, you, I mean, in a way, the Scarlet Gospels is very much like a shoot your shot, shoot your load kind of story, right? <laughs> like we, this is the last kick at the can. So anything that you wanted to do, you got to get it in here now. If we're thinking about a TV show that's going to go on for potentially multiple seasons, or if you're going to wrap it up in 10, like, yeah, this is your episode nine Game of Thrones moment, right? Like, this is Mm -hmm. when the big moves come out. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, you know, I I think the question is, if we're going to see these aspects of hell, I wonder what perspective, like, the lens is going to take. Like, are we following the humans and then as they dig deeper we start to see more of these aspects of hell Mm. or like do you just come out swinging and it opens up with like you're in hell and you're following these cenobites around yeah yeah because as much as i enjoyed the harry demore parts like particularly the opening section where he goes down south and has his encounter with hellraiser you know that felt like a one-shot comic but mm-hmm. then as soon as we go into hell, whenever we cut back to Harry and the Harrowers, I just thought, why are you here? Like, what are you <laughs> adding to this story right now? Because you're not the thing that I'm most interested in. Like, I want to follow the Hell Priest and I want to see him fight Lucifer. I want to explore interesting, weird characters that are popping up to guide Harry and the Harrowers. But like... We don't get to spend time with them because we have to keep doing weird shit with the human characters. And I just think, like, if you're not going to do something bigger or put them in more danger, I don't really know why they're here. Which, that brings up a really interesting notion that I hadn't really considered. Like, is there is there a Hellraiser TV show that humans aren't even part of the equation? God, see, I, I would love that, and I don't think we would ever get it. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so tricky because like it, it is it then becomes like who are your protagonists what mm-hmm. is the story you're trying to tell yeah like do you shuffle some things around and ultimately pinhead is your protagonist and mm-hmm. like the big bad is the ultimate big bad in lucifer if we're, yeah. or if we're following these narrative threads or or do we have some other kind of you know there's the Cenobites and they're doing what they're doing, which mm-hmm. is really unpleasant for the people that they capture. But overall is just kind of part of the, I don't know, the natural course of things. Uh, but then there are these other factions that want to take over and that becomes the, the, mm-hmm. the, the central conflict. Like I'd never really considered the idea that there could be a Hellraiser where you don't see a human character throughout the duration of the story. Right. Or it's like we see them occasionally when we need to get a sense that, okay, yeah, this is partially what the Cenobites are up to. Yeah. See, I would love that. That's the kind of big swing riskiness that I would love to see this project embrace. And I feel like the more we talk about this, the more certain I become that what we're going to get is anthology, standalone entries, that are going to explore different people getting hurt or helped, quote unquote, by the Cenobites. Yeah, I just, I also, I can't picture, I mean, it is HBO, so I I guess the budget would be fairly big, but the budget it would take to maintain a story that only takes place in hell and follows Mm -hmm. Cenobites around, I think would be very difficult to to be able to carry with a premium uh, cable budget. Mm -hmm. Because I just... You know, these aren't easy characters to just 
just be able to kind of put together as like a makeshift thing. You know, they're, you're yeah. going to have to put thought and if you do it correctly, you're going to have to put, you know, heavy prosthetics into each and every character. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's going to add up pretty quickly, not to mention what you're going to have to do in terms of, you know, set design. Yeah, I'll confess, when I think of comparable shows from an HBO budget genre kind of enterprise, I think of things like Watchmen, I think of Lovecraft Country, the fact that they're adapting The Last of Us, which is set in a post-apocalyptic future. Mm -hmm. None of these have the same sense of scope that you might need for Hell. They don't require the same level of prosthetics that you might require for Cenobites in every episode. But those shows are trafficking in some pretty grandiose storytelling, right? You know, I'm thinking of certain episodes of of Watchmen were like really big. Certain episodes of Lovecraft Country had like big monsters and so on. So I don't know, maybe we're underselling what HBO is capable of delivering. I, I guess the question is, how much are they willing to invest in what could ultimately be a very niche property? Yeah. And I guess that's the thing that, you know, because we, and by we, I mean, you and I specifically kind of live and breathe Mm -hmm. these stories. It is easy to forget that this is not a mainstream (laughs) property, like at all. Right. And, and the reality is, is they're going to make a TV show that they need to appeal to a mass audience. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mm -hmm. as much as you and I would love them to take some big risks, the reality is that they're going to do something that they can get eyeballs on because they need to make money. And it's got to be accessible. Yes. As, as for as much as you or I, you know, and, and other hardcore fans would love to just see, like, we don't even need humans. Let's just follow mm-hmm. the set of bites. I think that's <laughs> yes. probably a tougher sell for like the, the mainstream audience. They want to pull in order to kind of maintain this and make it worth their while financially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So thinking about wrapping this conversation up, thinking about the Scarlet Gospels, is there one element of this book that you would love to see incorporated either into the film or the TV show? Oh boy. Um, I'm not sure. Um, Because as as much as I enjoy, like, I think the things I liked the most was like the, the epic battle between Pinhead and Lucifer. I think Mm -hmm. that works on a literary sense. I don't see that necessarily working in a television series again unless they're willing to kind of take it and go on this big grandiose epic journey that i just don't see happening so i don't Mm -hmm. think i don't think the lucifer stuff is going to work that's a tough question like do do you have any thoughts on on anything that that jumps out that you would want to see um to be honest i had forgotten about the origami massacre until you mentioned it it would require us to have a host of Cenobites and, you know, obviously Pinhead would have to have some sort of grand plan that he's executing, which seems very unlikely unless we're literally adapting this source material. Mm -hmm. I can see smaller things like I'm imagining Doctor Strange level portals where that's how pinhead moves around time and space and we get to see him like i could see something comparable to the pinhead versus harry sequence down south where we get Mm. that that big blowout something like that seems like it could be possible which i think that's probably one of the most suspenseful sequences mm-hmm. in the book. And I think that could be made to look very cinematic or, you know, yes. that, that would be screen friendly, you yeah. know, this, this sequence where, you know, it's essentially in a house, but you get like the portals kind of tearing mm-hmm. open and you're kind of getting a peek behind the curtain into hell. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably the best Mm-hmm. approach for you know for doing like a long form television series you know i think keeping hell a in the mysterious. background yeah yeah and, and just kind of being like when when those pockets do open it's an oh shit moment um and it, you get that sense that like you know you can't stick around here for more than a couple of minutes otherwise you are done for mm-hmm. I, and i think tied with that one of the things we didn't really talk about was the way you know, Harry used his own magic to navigate this. You know, he's covered oh, in yeah, the tattoos. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe taking some of the 
if if we are working like let's say we're working with you know it's Harry versus Hell for whatever kind of narrative uh, threads that they're going to weave into this, mm-hmm. I think if we if we shift kind of all of that magic consolidation away from Pinhead, and if it's like a Harry versus Pinhead situation, it's the the power of the Cenobites versus kind of whatever Harry is able to scrounge together in terms of his own magical powers. And so it's like, he's able to use, he's just able to kind of barely fend hell off Mm -hmm. in these skirmishes using, you know, the power that he's, he's been able to kind of acquire over the years. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that creates some interesting tension and, and would create some, really suspenseful sequences in a way that I think would probably be grounded enough that you could expect them to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it feels very in keeping with a lot of the other stories that we're getting from Barker, like not just the the Hellbound Heart, not just the Scarlet Gospels, but like he likes fantasy, he likes magic. So I could see that as an interesting way to weave in because I think one of the things that sometimes frustrates me specifically about the later sequels is that So many of them are just like people who are in way over their heads and they have Mm -hmm. no ability to be anything other than like victims of the Cenobites. So the idea that somebody could stand up to them using magic as like, oh, so now it's magic versus hell. You could get some a really interesting visuals out of that. But also I think it could make for a slightly more compelling narrative, right? Because it's not just people being victimized all the time. So, yeah, this this could be to Hellraiser what the new blood is to Friday the Thirteenth, where right. we have you know Tina the the, the telekinetic, uh, oh you God. know the the Carrie going up against Jason and and creating that new dynamic. Which I know there's there's some people going to be listening to this going like, is that oh, really a no. comparison you want to make? <laughs> but I a hundred percent want to make that comparison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe better executed is what we're saying. <laughs> Uh, but if if we are going to have that human element, I would prefer it be someone like Harry or a character we know. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to get introduced to like a batch of new bland, probably white people um, that we're just going to have to tolerate on screen before Pinhead shows up. Right. Like if we're going to have humans in this, give us compelling people. And honestly, like I think your best bet is to probably use like a Harry Demore, you know, someone who is going to, it's going to make sense why he's able to navigate mm-hmm. whatever this, this longer story is. And, you know, also, you know, maybe pull in Kirsty. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about, during the the comic book episode like you know can you get ashley lawrence back to yeah. to do some kind of an arc uh for for kirsty i mean i think that could be very interesting too oh my god okay so here yeah like i feel like we're definitely going back to the comic book discussion but like <laughs> even if you can't get ashley lawrence because i don't think she works a ton anymore scott bacula is still very active requels are very popular right now bring mm-hmm. him back as harry demore from lord of illusions tat him up and have him introduce a little bit of mysticism into this world oh, and yeah. have him be like a mentor figure like maybe he's not the main character i imagine you're going to want some hot blonde 25 year old to anchor this with big tits <laughs> and you know maybe she has to seek out harry demore because she realizes she has unleashed hell on earth oh man I, I kind of stopped listening after I started imagining mm-hmm. like a, a tattooed Scott Bakula. Right. Um, Dude is still working and he looks great and he does a lot of TV. So if you want to sign him up for 10 episodes of an HBO show and pay for a new golden toilet, I'm sure he's going to be interested. <laughs> and I I think you have at least two people uh, in the host of this show that would also be interested. So Absolutely. Let's, yes. Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, that concludes our discussion of the Scarlet Gospels. Mr. Brian, if people want to talk shop with you about anything Hellraiser, how would they get a hold of you? Best ways on Twitter, at Evil Taylor Hicks. That's where you'll find me posting you know any kind of writing i have any of the stuff that uh, is coming out in terms of corpse club um through the 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 daily dead team Uh, i do some stuff through room work i do some stuff through cinepunks and then i also just kind of ramble about stuff that nobody cares about so just uh if you are interested in engaging in some hellraiser shop talk uh that's the best way to do it nice yeah god when you lay it all out it sounds very busy (laughs) 
It is. It's it's a little too busy. I've had to take a couple of breaks in <laughs> in recent months just because it was like it's it's oh, uh, max yeah. capacity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if folks want to get a hold of me, you can uh, hear me on Horror Queers every Wednesday, and I can be reached at B Stole My Remote on Twitter and Instagram. Always happy to repost a picture of Julia Cotton. Oh my God! Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> because the series has forgotten her that's another th- like bring back julia cotton right there's there is no way in hell that we should not have gotten any additional julia cotton since hellbound mm-hmm. here's the reality we know for sure that some kind of pinhead centibite equivalent is going to show up in jamie clayton for the film don't have a pinhead in the tv show your central antagonist is julia cotton winner we have a winner <laughs> scratch, there we just solved it scrap everything else we just said yes. and just bring back julia Khan. <laughs> always always and the mc escher leviathan sort of visuals that's what i also yes. want sounds good <sighs> okay well uh quick thank you to the anatomy of a screen pod squad network for hosting this limited series uh brian and i haven't figured out if this is the end or if we're going to do something else but uh you never know We'll see just how limited it is. Right, exactly. Because Hellraiser is ongoing. It never dies. So, uh, yeah. So that is the end of our discussion on the Scarlet Gospels. And if you have anything further to say, you know how to reach us. So without further ado. Let's close the puzzle box. Let's close the puzzle box. squad.